0: Uh, I'll try not to push down on it too much. So we're continuing in our uh, series on John this morning, um, and I just wanted to jump right into what we're what we're talking about. Uh, so my title this morning, you can see up there: betraying honor, loving denial, hopeful confusion, the way, the truth, the life, culmination, and supplication. Yeah, that's my title, uh, and the. Subtitle is Don't Let Your Hearts Be Troubled. Buckle Up. So this passage that I got to preach from is full of stuff. Like there's you could write books on different sections from this passage. So I'm gonna fly through a lot of stuff this morning and try to get through it. <laughs> but let me just kind of summarize where I'm gonna try to go. The the saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. That Jesus starts chapter 14 with, I think, is is a good place to start. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus has been at work to fulfill God's plan, and he remains at work fulfilling God's plan. Jesus will meet us again at the consummation of God's story. Jesus led the way in love, and we get to continue that work. He manifested the truth, and we can grow in that, in his word. And he is life eternal. And he showed us that that life is filled with prayer. So I'm going to start. I'm not going to read the entire scripture uh, as we normally would. I'm going to read through different parts as, as we progress through uh, what I'm doing. But I'm going to start reading the scripture this morning with John chapter 13, verses 21 through 26. So after saying these things... Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas and the son of Simon Iscariot. Sorry, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So my first point is, is betraying honor or the way. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now these guys, there's a lot of paintings. You can put up the, Terry, you can just put up the pictures that I have uh, as resting slides. Because there's so many, there's so much good art that surrounds the story of Jesus. Um, so these guys weren't in a huge room when they're sitting down having this, you know, there's Leonardo da Vinci's like the Last Supper where they're spread out on the table all organized, you know. Most likely they were kind of crowded around the table sitting on the ground um, and sitting very close together because this, this indicates that somebody was leaning on Jesus, right? So John's like leaning over on Jesus. And... Uh, So this is kind of an intimate setting. So when Jesus is very troubled or deeply troubled, or it says troubled in his spirit, I don't know if you've ever been in, in a place where you're kind of with people and then somebody's really troubled and they're kind of putting out that vibe and there's that uncomfortable tension, like, ugh, like, and this is Jesus, you know, like this is the guy that kind of sets the tone for them most of the time. So now they're sitting down for this celebrating, you know, Passover. It's like a a fun time for them, and here's Jesus. And then he just says, One of you is gonna betray me. Like, ugh, like this, you know, this is kinda of like me at a party. Like this is just like wah wah. And uh it's such a downer. But the tension that must have been happening in this room is interesting because it's clear that they didn't know who he was talking about. Isn't that interesting? So we look back. At this scripture, thinking to, our, thinking to ourselves, uh, well, of course it was Judas, right? And they would have known that because he was just a jerk, you know, the whole time. They, they just would have thought of him as kind of like the outcast guy, right? No. Like, that's just an anachronism that we kind of, we know the story, so we just kind of think, of course, you know. But these guys had no idea who he was talking about, right? Except for Peter, seems pretty sure it wasn't him, right? Because he tells... John to say, hey, who's he talking about? You know, obviously it's not me, right? I love Peter's confidence, but we'll get to that. So he says, one of you will betray me. I mean, put yourself in this room. When Jesus, let's say Jesus shows up here this morning and says, one of you will betray me. Like, where does your mind go? As I stand here, I'm the first one I think of. When Jesus shows up and says, one of you will betray me, I think, it's me. Like, I betrayed Jesus. You know, I've I've talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. I talked about just, like, the process that God has me going through right now of spending, like, just having drifted from God, To say, to say it that way. There's no other way to say it. Like, I became professionally spiritual, and personally unspiritual. And when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, that, that's, that's where I go, that's what I think of in myself. When I hear Jesus being deeply troubled, I think of myself and, and, and the way that I was walking. These men who, who had been following Jesus this whole time knew that there were threats on Jesus' life. So when he says, you're going to betray me, it wasn't just like, you're going to call me a name or you're going to hurt my feelings. He's saying that one of you is probably going to cause me to be captured and or killed by the authorities who want to kill me. We know in this story, as we've been going through John, it's clear that the authorities want to kill Jesus. I mean, it says it in the scripture. They're making a plan. And the people know that they want to kill Jesus because when he stands up and teaches them and the authorities don't do anything, the people are like, isn't he the one that they want to kill? (laughs) Right? Like, it's no big secret that Jesus' life is on the line. So when he says, one of you is going to betray me, this is a serious thing. So Peter, he says, who is it? Jesus said, it's the one I'm going to give the bread to. And then we read it and we're like, cool, he gets bread. But Jesus is toasting Judas. This is an interesting thing that happens in the last supper. Jesus knowing what's going to happen. He reaches over to Judas and he takes the bread and he puts it in the dip. It's called sop. And then he hands it to him. And this is what they would do at a banquet or at, at, a, at a dinner to honor like the guest of honor. The person that was hosting the dinner would say, here, you're an important person. I want to honor you with this, right? And here Jesus turns knowing that someone was going to betray him, knowing that it was Judas. And yet at this very end, he's offering Judas honor. Jesus is the one, remember, who is teaching, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And here Jesus is walking it out. Like Jesus is living in this way. He's honoring somebody who's going to turn him over to the authorities. Judas, Judas receives it, obviously. And then Jesus says, go do what you're going to do, right? After he had taken the morsel, Judas, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor, so that after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Judas turned from the light of the world and disappeared into the darkness and destruction. Part two, loving denial, or the truth. John 13, 31 through 38. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So it seems that Judas' desire to get money out of Jesus was a betrayal. Peter's desire to die for Jesus in his own strength and understanding is to deny the work that Jesus came to accomplish. Remember the narrator who's writing this book. So the person that wrote this book, John, he knows that he's not writing a story that he's not involved in, okay? He knows that he's writing a story that that he he was taking part in, but he wrote it for a very specific purpose, which he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. The narrator of the story says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wrote this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. That's why he wrote these stories. That's why he wrote these things down. Jesus did many other signs, but they're not written in this book, he says, but these are that are written. He writes... Famously, Seven Signs. It's it's a very organized book that he wrote. So that we would believe, or so that we would continue to believe. So this book, this gospel, the gospel of John, is actually written to you, those who believe. So that it would strengthen your belief. And in this section, the narrator is telling us the story after it happened, but he's letting us know what they thought at the time. They didn't know what Jesus what Judas was going to do. They just thought he was going to go do something. They didn't understand that he was going to betray Jesus. They were still thinking it might be me. It might be one of us. Peter didn't know what was going to happen. And he says, Jesus, I'm, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to fight these guys. Like, let's do this. And Jesus just says, no, you're not. So he's teaching in this section, Jesus Not only the disciples are with him at the time, but he's speaking directly to us. He says, the time has come to enter his glory, and God will be glorified, and he's going to glorify the son, and and all this glory language, it's a bit confusing, but I want you to understand that when these guys heard Jesus saying that God was going to be glorified, and he was going to enter into his glory, (coughs) excuse me, I have to cover the mic, not my mouth, (coughs) Uh, So, they're hearing the glory days of Israel. They're hearing the freedom from the Roman oppression. They're hearing the golden era of King David. They want the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They want to be out from underneath the thumb of the Romans. They're being oppressed by an occupying force, and they want to have their own kingdom back. And they think that he's the promised king that God has, has sent to take over, and they're going to be part of his cabinet, right? So when they hear Jesus talking about this glory, this is what they're hearing. Okay, we look back and we see that there's, Jesus is talking about something else. And he's been making it clear to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be taken captive, I'm going to be mistreated, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And all the while, they're scratching their heads. Remember? They're saying, well, let's go die with him. And what does he mean by this? And the narrator kind of helps us see their confusion in the moment. But it's also Jesus preparing these guys to understand after all this happens, what was actually happening. Because they're about to enter into something that is beyond their comprehension. If we were part of this, they're about to go into a time where it's like, What they expected to happen, the trajectory that they thought they were on, seems to them to get completely derailed, completely destroyed, completely ended. They completely lose hope in a sense because the guy who they thought was going to be king was murdered and put on show and killed and died. And everyone knows that's the end for him. But Jesus is talking about this is going to be the glory that God is going to reveal. This is what's going to glorify God, and I'm going to be glorified in this. This terrible murder, this terrible torture, but the resurrection. So Jesus, knowing what he would be going through, gives them truth to guide them during this time, but also a truth that would speak through history to us. A new commandment, he says, love each other just as I have loved you, and this will prove to the world that you're my disciples. What is the church known for in our world? Jesus says this to these guys who didn't fully understand what had been going on or what was about to, what they were about to witness, but also he says, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. But they hadn't yet seen the full manifestation of his love for them. They didn't fully understand it because he was preparing to go to the cross. Not only for them, but for us. For anyone who's in here today, Jesus was giving his life so that we could be saved. We could be made whole. We could be forgiven. We could be made right with God. We could be restored to the image of God that he, he created us to be. We could be restored to the family of God, into the relationship with God. This is the glory that Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. And we think, well, that's nice. You know, they hung out together, this and that. But the scripture says we know what love is because Jesus showed us what love is by laying down his life for the brothers. We didn't know what love is until God showed us what love was. So love is to give your life for somebody else. Jesus begins to interact with Peter now. Peter's saying, I'm, I'm, I'll die for you. Like this, What are you talking about? Peter kind of has an inkling, it seems, of what Jesus is saying. How come I can't go with you? What are you talking about? Where are you going to go? And look at Jesus' compassion, his love for, for Peter. Peter. He knows what Peter's going to do. It's like Peter's a little kid who can't see over the fence of what he's about to step into. And Jesus is looking at the future. And he, he, he doesn't, it's, it doesn't seem that he's condemning Peter at this point. But he says, you're, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny three times, by tomorrow morning, you're going to deny that you even know me. Three times. That must have been incredible for Peter to hear because in his own confidence, he was ready. He's like, I'm gonna do this. Like, let's, whatever, Jesus. Like, I got a sword. I'm ready to use it. I don't know what he thought. You know, I, and, we, you know, it's easy to sort of like bring Peter into our time and then think like, oh, how stupid Peter was and, you know, whatever, you know, make fun of him. But Peter, you know, if, if he's thinking according to the trajectory of, of what God had been doing in history, Peter's thinking of the heroes of the Old Testament who, who didn't, it didn't matter that they were outnumbered in these battles that they were fighting, right? He's thinking of the time when God fought for his people and overcame enemies. And he's thinking about fighting according to this, according to this world. Jesus described his kingdom to Pilate when he's on trial. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Peter's still thinking that we're going to restore Israel. We're going to take over the world. We're going to crush the Romans, right? And Jesus is on a whole other level. He's bringing the kingdom of God into this world, and it doesn't fight like the kingdoms of this world. So Peter doesn't get to take up his sword. When I think of betrayal, I said I thought of myself, but I also find myself right here with Peter, bravely barking out Christian truisms and bantering about theological advice in my own strength. I was just denying Jesus. My life was saying, I do not know this man, all while my mouth in front of Christians said, I'm a follower of Jesus. When we try to do God's work in our own strength, we are denying Jesus, denying what he accomplished for us and denying his way is best. We're denying he he is truly needed and denying that life is found in him. Jesus didn't call us to go out and take up our sword and fight like this world fights. Peter doesn't flee into the darkness like Judas. And Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. His denouncement of Peter's foolish human strength and the fruit of it is not an abandonment of Peter to his ignorance. Peter cannot escape the truth. This, it's interesting, the truth transcends time because Jesus tells him the truth. You're not gonna fight for me. You're not gonna die for me. You're gonna deny me. And Peter can't escape it, right? Peter knows what's gonna happen, and then he does it. I love this painting of Peter and the, the roosters looking at him, right? The rooster's like Bark, barking, and he looks away because then he remembers, Jesus told me I was gonna deny him three times. And Peter has the courage, unlike some of the other people, to at least follow Jesus into this mock trial that they had him in, right? And you see Jesus looking over at him as he's walking by. And the shame, like Peter immediately says, Peter goes out and cries and he weeps bitterly. He's destroyed at that point. His, His human strength is destroyed. We can't protect Jesus, We can't save Jesus for the dream of a renewed earthly kingdom or an American dream. Jesus' plans are the kingdom of God, a kingdom led by redeemed men and women like Peter who have fallen short, who have denied God, who are prone to wander but are brought back and are forgiven and are even more aware that we are saved by grace alone and by faith alone. The gospel is not good news to those who have never failed or think they are righteous. It is for us who have fallen short and can only point to Jesus as our champion. I can't can't save Jesus. I can't make Jesus work in the American dream. Jesus is not about the American dream. He's about the kingdom of God. It's totally different. This whole thing must have been confusing for these men who couldn't yet see the whole picture. But Jesus continues to teach. My my third point, hopeful confusion. Life. John fourteen. I'll read fourteen one through fourteen. <clears throat> Jesus He says after rebuking Peter to a certain extent, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He starts out, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus had been at work to fulfill God's plan, and he remains at work fulfilling God's plan. Jesus will meet us again at the consummation of God's story. He leads the way in love, and we continue that work. He manifested the truth, and we continue to grow in that. And he is life eternal and showed us prayer fills that life. Have you ever sat through a movie that had such a horrible ending that you're just mad at yourself for even watching it? The ending is so bad that it negates the whole story by making it a pointless waste of time. Don't watch the movie AI if you, if you have. But that one came to my mind right away. Artificial intelligence. Maybe you can think of a movie like that. Jesus gives a huge spoiler here to the end of the story. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Your story will not end like a horribly pointless movie. Just as Jesus came to and fulfilled His work the first time around, He'll come back after having completed it. The place that He's preparing for us. Side note: the KJV Bible, Great Translation in older English, uses the word mansions to translate the Greek word monon, or dwelling places. And Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, okay? So in his house are not mansions. When I grew up memorizing KJV, uh, my vision of what Jesus was describing was like a huge area with a whole bunch of huge houses, mansions in it. And everyone got like their own mansion. And then there was jokes about sin clocks cooling off Peter's room in the mansions, if maybe you heard them. But uh, it's such a uh, materialistic American understanding of what Jesus is talking about. Now, understand, Jesus is coming from his culture and at his time when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. He's referring to their tradition of marriage where the bridegroom is betrothed to the, to the bride and they're promised to get married and he comes and pays the bride price and then he leaves and he goes back to his dad's house and he makes a house in his dad's house for his new family to live. And when that place is ready, he comes back to get his bride and take her to live in his father's house with him and live with their family. This is what Jesus is referring to. So when we think about this picture that Jesus has given us, don't think of it in materialistic terms, like what kind of a house is he going to make me? Think of it in communal terms. Think of it in familial terms, that we get to be together with the one who loved us and with those that we love. That's the way we need to think of this picture that Jesus is painting for us. I'm sure I, I, I imagine the skateboard ramps that I'm going to have and all of that kind of stuff, but... I'm gonna be living in God's house. I'm gonna have a room in God's house with God's family and to be together with God and his people. That's the picture that Jesus is painting for us. It's not like you're gonna get a really nice house if you are a really good Christian, okay? That's not true. Jesus was the the only good Christian. (laughs) Or he's just Jesus, I guess I should say. So that, that that kind of stuff always just bothers me because of the misconceptions that I grew up with. Mansions. It's just it's a weird translation, you know, and it Shakespeare, you're awesome, you know, but he's hard to understand, right? We need to upgrade his language. We need to we need to think more clearly about it. So think of togetherness, not materialism, in this picture that Jesus is painting for them. You know the way. Philip's like, No, we don't what is God like? Show us the Father. Come on, Jesus. This is a, this is a, a request that Moses made. Show me, show me your glory, Lord. I want to see, see you, right? Don't we want to see? I mean, we want to see God, of course. But Jesus says, you've already seen him. How long have I been with you, Philip? Think about what Jesus is saying right here. If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. We wonder to ourselves, what is God like? We can go read the Gospels. We can read about how Jesus lived and what he said and what he did, and we can get a picture of what God is actually like. Because Jesus is saying, when you've you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? We know that the Scripture says Jesus didn't stand out in a crowd. Like, when he was walking through the crowd, people were like, well, look at that guy, man. He's good looking. It was like... he was just average, like you couldn't tell him apart from anybody else. He didn't stand out by his appearance. He wasn't like taller than everybody or blonde haired. you know, whatever. He just looked like your average Middle Eastern person at that time. But it was his life that set him apart. It was the way that he lived that set him apart. It was It's the way that God is. When we talk about wanting to see God, I mean, we're such a visual culture. We want to see things but you don't really know somebody by what they look like, right? You know somebody by what they do and how they live. So Jesus is saying not God looks like me, right? God's not some kind of picture that we draw. He's saying if you want to know what God is like, you want to see the Father, like see what the Father's like, look at my life. This is how God lives when he comes to be among you. This is how much God loves you. This is the way God treats people. This is how, this is the God that you've always wanted to see. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, he says, like, we don't know the way. Like, how, how are we going to get to where you're going? We, tell us the way. And Jesus doesn't outline a 12-step plan. He doesn't say, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to learn. You need to go to this university. He doesn't say, "Here's the religion that you need to join," or "Here are the sacrifices you need to make," or "Here's the rituals that you need to engage." When they say, "What's the way?" and they're not, they're not saying like, "Which direction do I go?" Okay, they're saying, "By the way," they obviously are. These guys understand it's a way of life, a way that you live, right? So, what's the way? Like, where are you going? How do I get there? These guys were very much molded by their culture that you have to do, their their calendar was arranged every year to do all the festivals and celebrations and all the stuff that was supposed to remind them of who God was and point them to Jesus and help them to see who he was, and later on it, it did, and we begin to understand those things, but they're asking him, like, what's the way? How do I get there? And he says, it's me. I am the way. That's weird. Right? <laughs> I'm the way, I'm the truth and I'm the life. Jesus we see I mean he was he existed in history, there's no doubt. He 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 changed the world, there's no doubt. He never wrote anything down. That's bizarre for a, a religious leader. He lived in, the, outsk- he lived in the, the boondocks. He lived in the outskirts of his town. He wasn't from an important place. How did this backwoods Galilean teacher change the world? Because he's God. <laughs> he's the way. So he says, I'm the way. I'm the path. He says, I'm the truth. Truth is such a stubborn idea. We can't deny it. The only people that can deny truth are highly educated intellectuals. To deny a truth exists is to speak nonsense. To say there's no truth is to say the truth is there's no truth. What? There is a truth. You can't escape it. The only thing we can say is that there's truth, but I don't fully know what it is, or I don't fully understand it. I want to know more, or I'm agnostic about it. I'm ignorant. I'm skeptical. I don't know. But to say there's no truth is just to speak nonsense. There is truth. Jesus says, I'm the truth. I fell in love with the truth. When I finally grew up out of my indoctrination that truth was a relative thing that I made up like a fairy tale and understood that truth is a reality, a hardcore Logical thing that I can't escape from That there's a truth and Then I thought I want to know what it is And I fell in love with this concept of truth And I discovered that it was Jesus But it took me a while to understand That this truth is a person Truth is not an argument I just wanted to argue with everybody About absolute truth And say that you know you can't escape absolute truth And blah 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 And then it was like Wait I am the truth Like the truth is a person That's weird I don't, fully, I don't fully understand that, but I want to know the truth, so I want to know Jesus more. When I understood that it took, it took a while for this truth, my brain's kind of logical, and it locks onto those things. It took a while for that to like seep down into my heart, that the truth is personal. Jesus makes a very exclusive claim here, and he's unapologetic about it. He says, I'm the life. Jesus is talking about a different quality of life. It's to be reconnected, to be reconciled to the source of life, to the one who we are images of, that, that longing inside of us to be connected to, the, to something, that, that conscience that we have that when we, when we do something wrong, we sort of know it. Jesus is saying, I'm the life. He's the, he's the one that connects us back to the source of life. It's also eternal life. Jesus came, he said, to bring life in that abundantly right now. But he grants you eternal life right now. It doesn't, it's not like, okay, I'm going to believe in Jesus, live like hell, and then play my get-out-of-jail-free card when I'm in the religious line up there in the clouds or whatever. No, Jesus says, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to change the world right now. The way of life is going to be different for you. But it's an eternal thing. Like I started when I began to put my trust in who Jesus is, I received eternal life so that now I'm not a slave to the fear of death. Like this decrepit and decroding body will die, right? It's already telling me it's on its way. But I'm not going to die because I'm trusting in Jesus. I have eternal life right now. So that even my perspective on the way changes. I don't have to be worried about retirement and the American dream and blah, blah, blah and all this, all this temporary garbage because I'm part of the kingdom of God. I'm part of an eternal reality. I'm part of a family that's gonna outlast whatever this place is. It's gonna outlast whatever presidential administration is currently in office. <laughs> it's gonna outlast it by millennia. So my my perspective on life changes. He says, I'm the life. So we hold fast to this confident hope that we have in Jesus, that we are called children of God and Jesus gives us life abundantly. That doesn't mean I'm always happy, I'm healthy and I'm wealthy and there's nothing to worry about. Even Jesus was troubled (laughs) in this passage. Jesus was deeply troubled because his own Follower was going to be betray him. Following Jesus and having that life doesn't free us from the struggles that we're going to face as humans. It doesn't free us from being betrayed by people that love us. It doesn't free us from the worries of paying our bills or getting a job or whether or not our car is going to start next time we try to fire it up, right? We, we have to live this life but we're not, we're not constrained by this world. We're not constrained by the way that this world wants to categorize us because we can hold on to the reality of what God says about us. When we, when we put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross, that's what faith is, right? Faith is not to believe that God exists. Faith is to believe what God did on our behalf. Faith is to trust that his way is better than my way. And I don't always know the right way. I'm like Peter, I'm going to go out and fight. And God's like, actually, you're going to totally mess up. (laughs) And then I'm going to restore you because I'm going to pray for you. And then in that restored state, you're going to be more humble. And you're going to be able to operate in the power of the Spirit, which Peter had no idea about yet. He thought he was going to have to do this all in his own strength. But Jesus made a way for us to truly receive life. And he says, nobody comes to the Father except through him. There is no other name under heaven, given under heaven by which we must be saved, the scripture says, or or made whole. So the last part, culmination, supplication. So there's so much to be said in this this section of scripture. I just want to remind us of a few things and then wrap up with what Jesus talked about last. When we seek to get money from God or see Jesus as a cash cow or a give-to-get scheme, that's to betray him. We can't serve God in money. Jesus made that clear. When we want to fight for Jesus in our own strength, it's to deny him. It's to deny that we need him to give us life, to give us strength. And to experience the way, the truth, and the life is a journey with a close friend. These are not things that we just learn intellectually. These are not classes that we take and put certificates on our wall. These are things that we walk out that shape us. The the wounds, the hurt, the victories, the joys. Jesus is going to walk us through that and we're going to experience that with him. It's not something that is just intellectually assented to and held onto. It's an experiential reality we learn and we grow through experience and and his word obviously but it, you're not just going to learn it it's not something that that you're just going to learn and like okay i got it you know do this it's something that you're going to experience when he says i'm the way the truth and the life he wants you to know it with experiential knowledge not just read it in a book you know like i i used to skateboard when i was a young person because <laughs> it's a young person sport and uh, then you thrash yourself. And uh, I remember talking to these kids, you know, and it, it's all about what tricks you can do, right? Can you do a 360 kickflip? Can you do a kickflip? Like all these different tricks, right? And this, I remember talking to this one kid, and he's like, yeah, I can do kickflip. Like, oh, cool, man, let me see. He's like, well, you know, I read about it in the magazine. I know how to do it. I'm like, okay, you know, that's a start. The next part is to get on that board And start rolling and try it, you know? And that's kind of where we we need to to match those things up, you know? It's like, you can read about kickflips in here, but you need to get on that board and start rolling and then go for it. And you're going to totally bail, you know? And Jesus is going to be there to pick you up and be like, all right, let's just try Ollie first, you know? Let's just try to learn how to balance or whatever. He's going to help us in that. He's going to help us experience the truth of what he's saying. He's not just going to leave it to our intellectual understanding. So lastly, Jesus says this. I I kept putting the ESV in here. Oh, I put it there too good. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's it's a weird uh, idiom that is used in the scripture. He says, amen, amen, I say to you. Uh, And it's just like, He's, he's trying to stress the veracity of what he's going to say. Like, listen to this. I'm serious. I'm, I'm seriously telling you this, you know? Like, we, truly, truly, it's just weird. We don't really have another way to say it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, And if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. There's a lot that can be said about that. But the best way to understand and learn prayer is to do it. Prayer is to communicate with God. Prayer is to talk to him just as you are. Imagine yourself as a parent. Maybe you've had kids, maybe you haven't. But you see these little ones running around, right? Right? And they run up to you. Like, my, my daughters would come up to me when they were little, and they would say stuff to me. Hey, Dad, like, I found this thing, you know, I found, I want some wah you know, and I'm not like, water. <laughs> I kind of was, but <laughs> I'm not like angry at them because they're not perfect at saying what they want to say, Right? And that's how God is with us in prayer. Like when you come to God and you think to yourself, I don't know how to pray. Like start there and just start saying stuff to God, however you say it, however you would talk to somebody else, talk to God that way. Because he's not a father that's up there saying, no, that's not the right words. No, that's not the right incantation. Nope, that's not the right verse. That's not the right whatever. You can say, God, I'm... I'm, Help me pray. I don't even know what to say. God, I'm blankety blanking, blanking, mad right now. God, please help me. God, I. Why are you so far away from me? God, why are you evil? God, why? Are, why do you let the wicked prosper? Like these are all. These are all prayers that happen in the Psalms. God, why? Why do you let me down? Where? Why are you so far from me? Why don't you help me? When we pray, we come to God just where we are, whether we're a toddler or we're a teenager, what's worse, or we're an adult. Like We, we, we just come to God with the ability that we have to communicate. He's the one that gave us this, this, this idea of communication. It's his image in us that inspires us to communicate and connect with other people because it's only practice to connect with him. It's only a signpost pointing to the reality that we can connect with God. But I just want to say this. Conversation with God in prayer is not a conversation with a person. Like when I talk with Soph, my daughter. Like, hey Soph, hey dad, how's it going? You know, it's like boom, 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 boom. God talks to us in his word and we go to him in prayer. Sometimes we, we read his word back to him when we pray and then we wait. And God doesn't always talk. But He says, pray continuously. Pray constantly. Always pray and never give up. So when you go to prayer, don't be frustrated because you're sitting there feeling like you're talking to nobody or you're feeling like there's no response. I remember one of my, my teachers in, in uh, Bible college said, You know what? When you, when you go into a room and you kneel down, and you start talking to someone who's not there, that's an act of faith. And I thought, yeah, that is. <laughs> God, God honors faith. So when you go talk to God, don't expect that there's going to be the writing on the wall. You know, the big hand's going to appear. Don't expect that God's just going to respond to you as if it's a normal conversation with a person. But prayer is what God calls us to, to spend time with him, to pour out our hearts to him. And he is going to meet you in those times. He is going to come through. He, he's the one that wants us to do that because we're going to receive life in it. So I say all that because I want to pray this morning. We, we pray every week, right? We pray in corporate prayer together. And so today, as Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it, that the Father would be glorified in his Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. You know, and, and it's very tempting to think to myself, like, okay, a new work van, <laughs> like, in Jesus' name, you know, and then look outside, right? Uh, and there's a story that another preacher told that I think is, is helpful. He's talking to, like, an elder at a church one time. He's talking about prayer, and then afterwards, the, the guy came up, you know, and he'd been in the church for a long time, and he says, you know, I'm really frustrated with prayer because I'm an elder in the church, I teach Sunday school, I've led all the mission trips or whatever it is, you know. He did, I'm here every week at the prayer meetings. I do this, that, and the other thing and but whenever I pray I don't get I when I pray I don't get any answers. And the guy said it seems like you're praying in your name. You're praying based on who you are and what you've done. Jesus says, "Pray in my name based on who I am, what I've done." So Martin Luther said when we come to prayer, it's our unworthiness it's our unrighteousness that makes our prayers heard to god when we think to ourselves i'm not i i got to get myself right before i pray i i don't know what to say or or i you know i really screwed up or peter i totally denied jesus 3 times right next to him that's when we can go to prayer that's when faith in god that's when his grace is sufficient for us that's when he reaches out to us and says come and pray so it's your, it's your inability, it's your unrighteousness that makes the prayer of faith work. And that's all it is. God, I'm not right, I'm not good at this, but I'm going to choose to believe that you're listening, that you told me to do this, and I'm going to reach out to you. So this morning, <clears throat> before I continue with the seminar on prayer, uh, let's stop and let's pray. So I'm going to ask you to pray quietly for a little bit, and we're just going to pray. You're just going to pray quiet. I'm going to pray quietly, and we'll just spend a few minutes, okay, just praying together. And then I'll kind of cut in and interrupt your prayers just when it's getting good. And then I'm going to ask you to pray out loud for whatever it is that you, you feel like we need to pray for. There's, there's so much to pray for in our city in our country, in our world, in our own families. So we'll also pray together afterwards. But let's pray just for a few minutes. Let's just shut yourself in, close your eyes, whatever you need to do, and just try to connect with Jesus in his name.